All right, a week ago, Tuesday, an article was published by AWD News. And uh, in the article, there was a quote from Israeli Defense Minister. Uh, the quote said, uh, we will destroy them with a nuclear attack. And the quote was in reference to the country of Pakistan and their possibility of sending troops uh, into Syria uh, to help ISIS. As this news article made the circles, uh, made the rounds, it uh, came to the attention of the Pakistani defense minister. And so on Christmas Eve, on his uh, official Twitter account, he made the statement, he said, Israeli defense minister threatens nuclear retaliation, presuming Pakistani role in Syria against Daesh. Israel forgets Pakistan is a nuclear state too. Those sound like fighting words and not something to be, to be trifled with. You have two nuclear states talking about war with one another, or at least making veiled overtures at the fact. Now, the, the sad part about the story is that, supposedly, that was not something that the Israeli defense minister ever said. It was a made-up news article that just started making the rounds. And fake news has been uh, more in the headlines lately, as a topic, not as an item itself. Um, Facebook has co come under severe criticism for allowing fa fake news to, to be shared, to be pop, um, promoted and, and become popular across the network. Uh, this was especially an issue during the time of the election. Uh, you had articles popping up about both candidates that uh, were, were completely unfounded. And you know, we, we live in a, in a society, in a day and age, where you wonder, what can we really trust? What is true? What is, what is the reality here? We see so much information, so many facts, but, but we, can we can question so much of it. We can trust so little of it. Several years ago, uh, I believe it was, it's been six years now, uh, my wife and I had the opportunity to travel to India and uh, had a great time there, uh, good time with a, a wonderful family uh, as we were working in a church there. And then we spent three days uh, just doing the touristy stuff. And the, uh, the Indian Tourism Bureau had, uh, had a motto that they used on all their posters and advertising. It was Incredible India. And as we toured the country, it really was true. It was incredible India. It was true in two different senses, though. It was true in the sense that there were some beautiful things there. Uh, seeing the Taj Mahal was, you know, it's, it's a beautiful sight. It's a magnificent building. Uh, there are lots of other magnificent buildings, uh, historical buildings around New Delhi. But it's also incredible in the sense that it was not credible. Uh, and there were, as a tourist, it was very easy to be lied to, to be taken advantage of. And I, I don't mean this, anything against the Indian people, um, but in the tourist areas specifically, I felt like we couldn't trust anyone. We walked out of the, the train station in New Delhi, and we had received instructions from the family that we were staying with that, you know, you just need to get an approved taxi. There should be a booth that says prepaid taxi somewhere there. 
go there, you give them your money, they give you a ticket that says where you're going, you give that to a driver, they'll take it there, and then they'll come back and get the money. So you don't have to negotiate anything, you just pay it and you go. That's the best way to do it. So as soon as you walk out of the train station, you're accosted by a, a big mass of unofficial taxi drivers. And their first question to you is, all at once, where are you going, where are you going, where are you going? As soon as you tell them where you're going, they're going to start offering you prices. Of course, lower than the official taxi price, uh, plus a few detours and other stops along the way. So we were warned, don't, don't tell them where you're going. And so we're there, we're like, you know, we're not going to go on these taxis, we're, we're going to go find the official taxi. And, and they started telling us, there is no official taxi. There's none here. There's none at this train station. Uh, you can look, but you're not going to find any. Where are you going? Where are you going? Just tell us where you're going. And finally, we walked another 15, 20 feet, and we came around a corner, and they're still asking us, where are you going? Just tell us your destination. And I looked up, and I said, I'm going right over there to the sign that says prepaid taxi. And, you know, it's, in a world like this, it's, it's hard to know what the truth is. It's hard to know what truth is. That's not a new question. Uh, Acts, or, sorry, John chapter 18. Pilate ends up asking the same question. He's interrogating Jesus. He asks him, are you, um, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus an answered him, verse 34, are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did somebody else tell you? It goes on, and, and Pilate, verse 37 says, Well, are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews said to all of them, I find no fault in him. So Pilate's last question there, what is truth? It's a question that we can ask of life in general as we see and gather different information. What is truth? It's a, it's a question people ask of religions. Looking out around the world, there are thousands, tens of thousands of variations of religions, of man trying to, to understand what life is about, what the meaning of life is about, how to, to be prepared for the afterlife. And we can say, which one is true? How do we know? We can also apply it on a smaller scale. When we, when we consider our own, our own lifestyle, our own habits, our own practices, and we say, what of these things Am I doing wrong? What is, what is right? What is wrong here? What is true? What is truth? That's a question that, that John answers uh, throughout his writings. Uh, more than any other author in the New Testament, he talks about truth. Uh, truth in his epistles is used almost as much as all the rest of the epistles combined. Uh, in the Gospels, he uses it disproportionately more than the other writers. So we're going to take a look tonight 
about truth in the book of John and then end up uh, in John chapter 4 to see how uh, the woman at the well um, interacted with the one who was truth. So in John, uh, when John writes the term truth, occasionally he'll do it with the sense of just acknowledging that something is, is verifiable, that something is, is accurate, is factual. But he also uses the term with a bit, more, a bit more baggage than that, a bit more meaning, a bit more emphasis. Uh, in John chapter 1, let's go there next. John chapter 1, uh, John begins with an introduction of the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This Word, of course, is Jesus Christ. Uh, move, move down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In, in the book of John, um, we'll see that he often refers to truth uh, sometimes, as I said, in the, in the context of, of accuracy, of, of veracity, but sometimes in the concept of, of identity. It's, it's the embodiment of, of Jesus Christ, of God. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of God, and God is the source of truth. He is the, the truth, the origin of truth. And so as we see, uh, see here, he uses the word truth in verse 14. He's full of grace and truth. Now, some commentators will say, well, this grace and truth is um, it's similar to what they used in the Hebrew, where you would say um, God's steadfast love and his faithfulness. So grace would be his steadfast love and faithfulness would be uh, what John uses as truth. But I think he goes beyond that here. He's, he's more conveying the idea of of truth as the express image of God, the express um, revelation of God as, as the word here. In verse 17, you have a, a comparison. It says, for the law was given through Moses. So if we have the law is to Moses, as what is to Jesus Christ? Most of us would say the law is to Moses as grace is to Jesus. But that's not, that's not all John says here. He uses the word grace and truth. Um, the law was not a complete picture of God. The law, the law can correspond to grace, but in Jesus Christ, we have truth, the, the fullness of God, the fullness of that, that identity. Um, so here John uses truth to, to show that that the law, you know, the law portrayed some of what God was. But Jesus Christ, when he came, he portrays all of that as the truth. So we go on then um, 
from John chapter 1 uh, to chapter 3. Uh, this is where John the Baptist is referring again uh, to Jesus. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. Uh, this mirrors some of the verses in John chapter 1, where it talks about some of the people, um, his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, he gave the power to become the sons of God. Here it says uh, that no one received his testimony, and those who did receive it certify that God is true. We bear witness to the, the truth, the, the completeness of God. <clears throat> John chapter 4 is the next, um, next reference here, but we're going to come back to that one uh, when we talk about the, the woman at the well and move to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. This is a, f a pretty familiar passage where you have, have Jesus, you know, at, right after he, he's talking about um, his betrayal, about Peter's denial, he talks about the future. And he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. But it doesn't end there. Thomas raises the question question that probably all the disciples were thinking. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus responded to, responded to him and said, I am the way. But he didn't stop there. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so Jesus here includes not just um, not just that that he is the, the means to God, but he is the, the messenger. He is the message of who God is as well. Uh, he is the truth. He is the life. Um, and so we, you know, we see him answering the question with more than, than Thomas was looking for. In 1 John, uh, John continues to use, use the word truth this way. John, 1 John 4, 6, uh, he, he references those who know God, who hear his followers, um, they embody the truth. And so we here have, have John, as he, he talks about the truth a lot, he uses these references a lot. Um, he's referring to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the truth, you know, truth is something that, that needs to be verified. When, when somebody gives you a bit of information, you want to say, well, how can you prove that? Or how can you back that up? Or how can I research this? How can I make sure this corresponds to reality? But when we have the truth in Jesus Christ, it doesn't need that, that second guessing, that, that research. He is the truth. He is the person of the truth. And so as this truth encounters 
an individual. Uh, let's look at what happens in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, when we, when we see a Samaritan woman out on her, her daily business, just going out to get water, and she runs into the person who is the truth. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisee, uh, sorry, uh, verse 3. So Jesus leaves Judea and starts heading to Galilee. You know the story, uh, most of you. Uh, but he's, he needs to go through Samaria, Samaria. That was his decision that he made. And as he goes through Samaria, he came into the city of Sychar and took up a, a spot near the well as his disciples went into the city uh, to get some food. And so as he sat there, this woman came up to the well, and he began a conversation with her by saying, give me a drink. The woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And they go through this dialogue, and as the dialogue progresses and Jesus kind of reveals more and more of himself, you see her perspective changing as well. And so I want to take a look at how, how the truth of Jesus Christ changes her and correspond that to how, how as we uh, encounter the truth through God's word, it can change us as well. First of all, each encounter with the truth uh, will have an effect on us. Um, some ways that, that it will affect us. Uh, it should cause us to consider who we are. It should cause us to consider who we are. Not in the, not in the sit around and, and gaze at our navel kind of contemplate who we are. But the, the way that we think of ourselves, the way we identify ourselves, um, whether we think of ourselves positively or negatively. Let's just look at, at how this progresses here. First of all, as the, as the woman approaches Jesus, how does she identify herself? She says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan? Okay, she identif identifies herself by her heritage. She, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. And therefore, we don't really have any anything in common. We don't have anything, any, any reason to associate with one another because I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew. And her immediate, the immediate identity that came to her mind was a Samaritan. The, the word following that is she also notes um, specifically that she was a woman. Okay? Obviously, you know, that would have been apparent to Jesus sitting there, but she specifically states, I'm a Samaritan woman. Like, why are you asking me to drink? Um, there's, there's been a lot made of, of the fact that she was probably coming at, at an off time because of her reputation, because of her, her place in society, as we'll find out later, was less than upstanding, and so she has that identity that is going through her mind as well as she's talking with Jesus. 
So Jesus progresses in the conversation. And he says, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew who was talking to you, you would ask for living water. And he would give it to you. And you see, you see her then um, kind of consider her identity in respect to her need, in, in respect to her situation. She came to the well seeking water. She was there uh, to get something to drink. And as Jesus offered this to her, she says, you know, sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than Jacob, who drank from this himself as well as his, his livestock? And she, she discusses the situation. She discusses the water that she needs. Then progressing in the conversation even further, uh, after discussing her broken relationships, her failed marriages, it's her turn to ask a question. She makes another statement. And she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place to worship. So she now makes a statement about her theological position. Okay, so she stated her heritage, her her needs, her situation. Uh, she stated her theological position. Um, but none of these really encapsulate the Id identity that, that Jesus uh, wanted her to consider. Uh, and we'll talk about the, uh, the response to, those question, to that question then. But as Christ talked with her, eventually she came to the point that she saw herself as someone who was known by the Messiah. Let's see in verse 20, uh, 28. Uh, the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And so our identity, uh, as we make application from this, you know, as we consider you know, interaction with the truth of who Jesus Christ is, you know, we should not identify ourselves primarily by our heritage, primarily by our needs or situation, primarily by, um, I'll get myself in trouble with this one, but our theological position, um, though theological positions are important, um, they don't define us, you know, as long as we're within certain bounds. Um, of the relationship with Christ. But that relationship, that personal connection with Christ is what she, she ended up seeing. Secondly, though, uh, it should cause us to consider who Christ is. When the woman came, uh, came up to get her drink of water or to draw her water, she sees a man. As far as she knew, he was just like any other man. Uh, first of all, she, she saw him as just one among many. She was a Samaritan woman. He was a man. He was, he was a Jewish man, but one among any number of Jewish men. And that's how she initially 
saw him. He was a stranger. He didn't even have anything to get water with. Okay? Nothing of importance there. And as we progress through the story, and he starts talking about this living water, that she would not thirst again. Her interest is piqued a little more. And she, she starts to view him maybe as someone to make her life easier or better. Someone who, who, could, uh, who could take a task out of her daily schedule, who could, who could eliminate something that she didn't really enjoy doing that brought her shame to have to go to the well uh, and avoid the other people. She said, give me this water. That's what I want. I want someone to, to help me out, to, to make my life a little better. But as, as she continues to consider who this man is, as the, as the discussion progresses, as he says to her, call your husband and come here, she starts to realize that you know, maybe this isn't in accordance with what she's, she's perceiving at this point. She says, I have no husband. And Christ says, you have well said, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. At this point, the, the wheels are starting to turn. Um, she, is, she is realizing that he is not just an ordinary man sitting at the well, not just someone who's going to make her life better. So she, she upgrades him. His up, upgrades his status to, uh, to a prophet. In verse 19, she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. But Jesus doesn't want to just be a prophet in her, minds, in her mind or in our minds. He's not a good teacher or a spiritual leader. Uh, and so as, as she asked the question then, she says, Probably, probably to take some of the pressure off. I mean, this is getting really personal now. If you, if you were walking through, uh, you know, the, the cereal aisle at Walmart and uh, somebody walks up to you and says, hey, could you uh, reach that for me on the top shelf? And uh, so you pull something down for them and start striking up a conversation and, and suddenly they're mentioning your children's names and birthdays and... And that's going to get a little weird, right? And you're going to start to be a little uncertain. And they, then they start talking about even more personal issues. Like, what would be going through your mind? I, I can only imagine what, what this woman would be thinking um, after, you know, this, this conversation has progressed quickly. Uh, and it seems like here she's just, she's just trying to, to back off a little bit and, and, and make it less personal um, because she, she brings up this theological issue. She says, well, you know, where should we worship? And Jesus says to her here, he says, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jer Jerusalem worship the Father uh, verse 23, but the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers, there's our word again, truth, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. 
God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And as he answers this question, she asks the question of where? And the answer to that question was, we worship him, we will worship him in spirit. That's where. But he doesn't stop there. He says, in spirit and in truth. So not just a spiritual worship, but a spiritual worship in accordance with who God has revealed himself to be in truth. And he reiterates that twice. So the point is not missed. That the people should worship him in spirit and in truth. And then he reiterates it again in the next verse. So as we consider who Christ is, he answers this question for us. Finally, she, decide, she, she realizes that this is not just a prophet, not just someone to make her life easier and better, not just one among many, but this is the Messiah. This is the, the revelation of God. This is the Christ who knew her, who would tell her all things. And thirdly, a uh, an encounter with the truth will challenge us to alter our course. During the, the course of this conversation, the questions that she was asking changed. She goes from asking, where is the right place to worship? Kind of an out there question like, you know, I've always wondered this, but do I really have to be, feel guilty about not going to Jerusalem or is it okay to worship here in Samaria? To a, a very real and present question, is this the Messiah? Is this Jesus, the Christ? So she changed the questions she was asking. She also changed what she was doing. She... In verse 28, she left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that ever I did. Could this be the Christ? And then they all went out of the city and came to him. So she left her pot there. Forget about the water. That's not important at this point. She changed what she was doing because she encountered the one who was the truth. As we look at at this encounter of the woman with Jesus. You know, for most of us, we've had a point in our life where we, we encounter Christ in that saving sense. But we also need to continue having the encounter with him through his word. As we read the word, as we get to know him in more fullness, there are areas of our lives that, that we have... We have habits, we have practices, we have relationships, we have areas of our lives that have not been transformed by God's word. And as we read the truth of God's word, each of those areas we should allow to be worked over by truth. If we assume that, that the, the way we were brought up the way we were taught, the way that, that our culture has run is good enough, 
then we will stop short of where God wants us to be mirrors of the truth to those around us. If we assume that, that if, we're, if we're good church members, if we come and you know, pay attention, don't fall asleep, take notes, you know, come at least three times a week, that that will be good enough. But God wants us to be reflectors of the truth. And so we need to allow the truth to work over us. There's a quote that I, I read um, from a, a philosopher. So bear with me if it's a little heady. I'll, I'll try to summarize a couple of the sentences. As with Pilate in our day, Christ as the truth has also been abolished. We take Christ's teaching, but abolish Christ. We want truth the easy way. This is to abolish truth. For Christ, the teacher, is more important than the teaching. Just as Christ's life here on earth is vastly more important than all the, the peripheral results of his life, so also is Christ himself infinitely more important than just his teaching. Christ is the truth in the sense that to be the truth is the only true explanation of it, the only way of acquiring it. Truth is not a sum of statements, not a definition, not a system of concepts, but a life. Truth is not a property of thought that guarantees validity to thinking. When the requirement is to be in the truth, to merely know the truth is insufficient. In fact, it is an untruth. So, when we're looking at Jesus Christ, who says, I am the truth. When, when we are to be portrayers of the truth to the society around us, we can do that by being in Christ. By allowing, as he refers to him, the spirit of truth who will come, who he would send afterwards to work through us and to yield our lives to him. Just some thoughts uh, for application as we wrap up here. Uh, in, in applying this to our lives, uh, questions to ask ourselves. If, if we're not being confronted with truth, if we're not being made uncomfortable by some things that we read in the scripture, I see, I see probably two options here. Is it because we have mastered truth? Or is it because we've distanced ourselves from it? Something to think about. How do we arrive at truth? Hey, is it something that, that comes naturally? Is it something that comes by, by induction as we, as we live life? I mean, that's, that's how we form our worldview. It's, it's gathered by, by teachers. It's gathered, by, gathered from friends, gathered from situations in life, lessons we've learned, experiences we've had. But different people have different worldviews. Okay? Are those worldviews subjected to the truth that we read about in God's word? And are we letting our minds be challenged by what we read in God's word? Or are we assuming that, that what, we've, what we've just incorporated 
is how things should be and how we should, should continue to let them, to be, let them be? Or will we allow ourselves to be challenged? This involves sacrifice. It involves confession. It involves um, some, some time, some, some deep thought as we let God's truth work on these different areas in our lives. Question three, are you allowing the spirit of truth to work in your life? Or do you assume that everything is fine as is? Do you examine various facets of my life to see if they line up? And four, when I'm made aware of areas that are untruthful, do I embrace opportunity to more closely resemble Christ? Or do I resist change? And this can come up in a lot of different ways. Uh, through, through time spent in God's word, through uh, challenge, rebuke from, from other believers, through a spouse? Do you say, of course, you know, of course that's, you're just misunderstanding me, or, or that's, that, that's not really what I meant? You know, do you take those opportunities to consider and say, well, is there some, some aspect of truth some picture of, of the complete revelation of God in Christ that, that I'm not lining up with, that my, my lifestyle is not in coherence with. And what can I do to change that? Do you embrace those opportunities? Do you resist them? As we come to know the truth, as we, as we know Jesus Christ through his word more fully, uh, we should be able to see him and see the beauty of him more clearly. And as we see that, that should also make us recognize uh, some ugliness in ourself that needs to be transformed into his image. Uh, you can compare uh, John 4.29 when, um, when the, the woman at the well is confronted with this. She goes her way and says says to the men in the city, says, come, see a man who told me everything that I did. Could this be the Messiah? Then, um, contrast that over in John 8, as Jesus is teaching, uh, verse 40, these men, Jesus says to them, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. So as Jesus is teaching to the crowds, he tells them the truth, and they go the other direction. Their hearts are hardened, and they say, you know, we're Abraham's children. Um, we don't know who you are. So as we consider the topic of truth, truth is something that we all want as Christians, we shouldn't be afraid of the truth because the truth is here. We should allow the truth of God's word, the truth revealed through Jesus Christ to work on us, to change us, to change, to allow, change society through us. We shouldn't be afraid of the truth. We should welcome the God who wants to change us into uh, his image to be conformed to his son, to communicate that truth.